Welcome to episode nine of the Renegade Movement Performance Podcast. Today, uh, we're hosting Tyler Kalasi. Ty, go ahead and say hi. How's it going, guys? Uh, and we're going to talk today uh, with him about uh, some personal things and also about some performance aspects. Ty has a, a large background in that area. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, Tyler. Um, so once again, my name is Tyler. Um, <clears throat> like these two wonderful humans, I am a doctor of physical therapy. Um, I'm a traveler by trade, which means um, just like these two, I move around every three to six months working in different facilities that you know need me to be there. Um, on the side, I also run a strength and conditioning business, I guess you could say. It's all remotely done. So um, someone comes to me with a specific need in a part of their body, and I you know, create a program for them, um, starting with virtual assessments um, where they record themselves move in a specified way, and then we build a program off of that. And just to go way back, I guess, Ty, um, Kyle and I were talking earlier today about just kind of your background and how you started off at CrossFit Utica and whatnot. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, I've almost known Tyler for 10 years. Yeah. And I just realized that we go all the way back to uh, freshman, what was it? English? Yeah. In college? Honors English. Honors English. (laughs) (laughs) So good. But uh, Tyler, why don't you talk a little bit about how you got started with uh, CrossFit in general too, because you know, you, all of that is really familiar to, and you're really good at the training aspect as far as performance goes. So why don't you talk a little bit about where you started? Yeah. So when I finished playing college football, um, I was kind of looking for something to stay motivated, um, you know, and, and stay in the kind of fitness realm. As soon as I was done, basically there was a CrossFit gym opening up maybe an eighth of a mile from my apartment. So it just made sense. I was able to walk there or briskly jog there every day. Um, Within three to four months of being at the gym, I got really close with the head coach and owner. He became somewhat of a mentor. Eventually, he sent me off to get my um, level one CrossFit certification. Um, That was the first personal trainer, I guess you could say, certification that I I ever had. Um, And I still hold it very close to my heart um, because of that. Um, You're talking about a CrossFit level one tie? Yeah. Yeah. So coached for a little while. Um, at the same time, I was moving into um, grad school to be the doctor of physical therapy that I am today and eventually um, jumped into getting my certified strength conditioning specialist certification, um, which allowed me obviously to work with folks outside of the CrossFit realm, which was obviously another plus. Um, Fast forward until now, uh, when we started traveling, I stopped coaching formally as a CrossFit coach and then just dropped in or, you know, coached a class when I needed while we were where we were over the country. Um, and I currently just train remotely at this time. That's awesome. So all your clients are all online right now? Yep. Every single one. Some of them I consider dual clients if I end up getting home to upstate New York to see them. Um, but everyone is strictly a remote client, basically. That's awesome, especially for right now. Yeah, I mean, it's being familiar with the the online or remote, like I guess you could say protocols or standards of practice have really come into handy right now during this situation because, you know, everyone doesn't want to be at the gym or can't be at the gym. So it's definitely a plus. Yeah, so how... 
I mean, I assume most of your clients uh, were going to some kind of a gym facility that had equipment, right? Yeah. And now they're likely not doing that. Right. Uh, I actually saw a post of yours uh, on your Instagram account the other day about using a backpack uh, for some movements. And it was pretty cool. Kind of what adaptations have you used for like basically like programming the same stuff, but being creative with how you're loading it, right? Right. So I guess um, it starts with explaining that most of the of the remote training, the personal training that I do is coming from a rehab standpoint. So folks are currently active or maybe just getting back into being active um, and they have a specific region of their body or a specific injury um, or ailment they want to address. So they come to me um, and I give them two or three, maybe four days of, of programming workouts where they can address those specific limitations, right? So those people are already not using um, high loads or, or like fancy equipment because they, they don't need to, right? So the transition from the gym to the home, as far as my athletes, um, has been quite easy. There's been a little bit of challenges with, with certain things that require some overhead work, um, but we've been, you know, we've been figuring it out. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what have you been, you know, finding that your athletes are coming to you most with? What kind of conditions so, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess you could say like the, the big three, right. Or big four conditions yeah. I see with a lot of folks, um, starting with, with some sort of lower back or hip pain. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one and two into, into one right after that would be the shoulder. Um, obviously, um, yep. and then hip uh, or knee discomfort. Um, so a lot of folks that I work with are, I guess you could say some sort of chronic situation where they've been dealing with it for, you know, at least six, eight weeks. Um, and they're starting to realize that they can't medi mediate it, you know, on, on their own. So they need some, some extra help. And then they luckily find you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing, and I think this is how it should be with, with most physical therapists as well. Um, but the biggest thing I look to do is give people, you know, the, the tools so they can leave me as soon as possible, right? These yeah. people clearly were trying to do it on their own, realized they couldn't. They came to me as a personal trainer and or physical therapist, and eventually they will leave me, hopefully with better knowledge and better tools to to fix it once again, you know, if it happens down the road. Absolutely. That's, that's why this whole time is almost a blessing for lack of better terms, only because as PTs, we don't want people to be reliant on us. And right. so being, being far away from them and not able to physically touch them, like sometimes touch is necessary and it is, it is okay. But for us to be able to facilitate someone getting better and feeling better and moving better from a distance, that's, that's a great thing. And I think it's good that some PTs, you know, are now realizing the influence that we have, even though we aren't in the clinic and what we can do from a distance. Something yeah. I want to touch on that you were kind of bringing up there a little bit tight was, so I think a lot of people, especially in the performance athlete, or even just, you know, your younger individual who's pretty healthy and fit and, you know, might go to the gym a few times a week and thinks that considers themselves pretty fit. Right. Right. I think that demographic hears physical therapy and might kind of cringe a little bit and be reluctant to go see a physical therapist. As you were saying, they might be working on things for six, eight, 10 weeks or more sometimes on their own without mm -hmm. much success. And I think there's a stigma that exists 
around physical therapy being kind of a you know limiting factor you can't go back to do your sport or your training regimen or you can't run that 5k that was your goal or whatever it might be that they're working towards or whatever lifestyle they have and i think you know that exists where in their minds if i go to pt that that guy or gal is going to try to limit me on what i can do and is going to tell me to stop and avoid these activities and certainly that's not the case at all um and so have you found that when your clients come to you, they kind of have a little bit of uh, hesitation or anxiety about that? I think it's a little bit different for me um, because I kind of hold or, you know, wear two masks, right? I am a physical therapist, but I'm also, you know, a strength conditioning or, or personal trainer. So with me, it's a little bit easier because I'm in the facility, right? Or I'm in that world that these people are coming from, that, that, that high intensity or, or, you know, powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting world. I know that world and I live there as well. So there's less touch points. Whereas, you know, going to a physical therapist, you most of the time, right, you have to go to the doctor and you have to get a script and then you have to get an evaluation. And in that whole time, you're kind of wearing this diagnosis that the doctor gave you like a sprained ankle or low back pain or sciatica. And you, you know, you slowly, damper your life more and more by the time you get to physical therapy it's this extra thing that you have to do while your life is being dampered um and most people see it as like oh well i'm going to do pt and then i'm going to go back to the doctor and they're going to tell me i'm good and then i can go back to living normal life but you both and myself and i think a lot of physical therapists nowadays are starting to be better at showing people how well we can bridge the gap between that um injury state and living normal life, right? It's, it's more of a spectrum. And I think as a profession, speaking primarily on physical therapy, we just need to be better at making people understand that there is a gray area. You can be quote unquote rehabbing while you're still training, right? I'm a big proponent of making people understand that rehab is training and training is rehab. Of course, with physical rehab or physical therapy, there's a little bit more, might you say, science applied to it, right? Intricacies, depending on the therapist, but it's still just training. Those standard, um, you know, specific adaptations to impose demands, um, progressions, increased weight, decreased intensity, all that stuff still applies when someone's not in rehab. We just decided to give it a fancy name and spend seven years learning how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And it's, I mean, and that's one of the things that I think you're doing really well, right? Is two things. So you have kind of the hat of I'm a strength and conditioning specialist, professional, however you want to label that. There's a million titles for that nowadays, but, and I also am living that life. So you're in the same place or a very similar kind of environment as the people that you're seeing as clients. And so you've bridged the gap really well there. Um, but I think even, you know, the traditional physical therapist who may not be as active, I think nowadays younger, the younger crowd is starting to get that. And like you're saying, um, can kind of eliminate some of the barriers that healthcare has previously put up for people getting back to what they want to do, even while they're still quote unquote rehabbing. Well, and sometimes, yeah. especially with what Tyler's doing, you don't have to go, see a doctor first. It's nice because they get the immediate access and like, you know, with direct access, you don't need to see a, a physician first, which is, you know, sometimes it's a blessing because you don't get that diagnosis paralysis and you're like, well, now I have sciatica. Great. 
um, you can just go get treated. Yeah, um, yeah. Something I wanted to touch on that too was Ty was talking about the barriers and you were saying, you know, go to your doctor, they check you out, give you a referral, you go to the PT, they evaluate, you know, the whole process of it. Right. And all the time you're, you're living with that diagnosis and that condition and that's your day in and day out your identity really. Right. Mm-hmm. And something I thought of when we were talking about that was the locus of control. So you go to a doctor, they tell you what's wrong with you. They tell you what you then need to do. And then you go to this clinic and the same thing happens from a physical therapist. And then, like you said, you know, however many, six weeks, eight weeks, 12, however long it takes, then you go back to your doctor and the doctor says, okay, based on what the PT is telling me and what I'm seeing, you're good to go. And, and now you're healthy again. And that whole time, not only are you living with that diagnosis and you're also kind of jumping barriers, but beyond that, the locus of control is external. You're counting on other people, the doctor, the physical therapist, whoever else that you're contacting in the healthcare system, you're relying on them to tell you what exactly what to do and for them to judge whether you're healthy or not. And so the, the locus of control is completely externalized. Uh, whereas, you know, in the more modern direct access, even especially telemedicine, like you're doing um, system, the people have a lot more control and it's more like, here are some ideas to help you with what you're already trying to do. And yeah. then they get to take I think control that of what they want to do. The, the fact of, you know, normal, I guess, or everyday medical care being very external as far as the locus of control is a huge reason why many people are hesitant to go to those things, right? Except for a physical, which we all know is basically nothing, right? So that one doesn't <laughs> matter. Um, but when something is wrong, that's the most important time when people want to have control. I'm myself included. If I have something wrong, I'd rather just go to the doctor and then just not tell me what's wrong because I don't want to know. Just just fix it and let me leave, right? If just put me under for six weeks and, and handle it and then let me leave. Um, but I think the making the locus of control internal comes down to much more than just physical therapists changing what they're doing. Um, it's basically all people who provide a service, right? Whether I'm, I'm working, I'm wearing the physical therapist hat or I'm wearing the personal trainer hat, it comes down to letting the individual be along, be along for the ride. Um, you know, when, when I'm assessing someone, I'm telling them what assessment I'm doing, why I'm doing the assessment and, and where we might go from there. Ultimately, I would love for that person to be able to do it themselves. It's just not how this whole thing works. Right. So the more the person understands why I'm assessing and what I'm assessing and what they need to know from that assessment or evaluation, the better that they can do it again six months down the road or a year down the road, you know, if this issue occurs again. Right. And I feel like, you know, you talk about the two hats, the PT hat and the trainer hat. And I would I would say that you're you're pretty much wearing both hats all the time, because really what we do is training. It's just more or less we did go to school for seven years to get this fancy piece of paper that says we're a PT, Um, which, you know, it's a great thing. But the fact that, you know, all of us are blending those things and making sure that we're using our degree to not only rehab, but also make sure that we can insert that training world. I think that's one of the best things that we can do is to wear both of those hats. And I, I think, you know, I don't, I don't mean to downplay the profession of physical therapy. 
Um, oh, no. <laughs> I, I am, you know, right on the boat with physical therapists having a place in the healthcare care world and in the, I guess you could say, physical rehab or physical training world. But there's a reason, right? Mm-hmm. We are basically glorified personal trainers with a lot of backup to that glorification. Absolutely. Now, the issue is there are physical therapists in this world, or at least in this country, that tend to neglect portions of education that they receive, right? We spent over a year and a half learning how to pick apart and decipher evidence studies, like literature, okay? We spent some time learning how to decipher diagnostic codes and some of that lingo that comes from the the medical house, from the, the physician and things like that, right? We spent a ton of time learning how to assess, not only assess, but judge those special tests in those assessments on how valid they are and which ones matter. When it comes down to personal training, a lot of times it's it's kind of like throwing it at the wall and seeing if it sticks. And you use experience and anecdotal evidence. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know this person's coming in with this issue. So you you kind of throw together a program, you spend a week or so kind of feeling it out. And you, and you get there. The more experience you have, the quicker you get there. With physical therapy, we should be getting there much quicker in basically in a half an hour. Right. But I think the issue comes down to is a lot of our colleagues and myself included at some point in my career, we did not pay, we weren't paying attention to the science and I guess the evidence or the literature as much as we need to. As you know, especially nowadays with social media, the way it is, there's this like two sides of the house where, you know, people say evidence and literature is behind. And then other people say, like, you should only be practicing as a physical therapist based on what the evidence or the literature is saying. And I think there's a there's a middle ground. Right. Yeah. If you experience a treatment that is effective, that should be evidence enough for you to try it again where it's appropriate. But the way we judge its appropriateness is by looking at the tests and the assessments that we do that have been backed by the evidence um, in things like specificity and sensitivity and things like that. I think when um, someone, you know, I think it's irresponsible for someone to hold the status of a doctor of physical therapy without doing the little things like paying attention to some of that literature or evidence-based of knowledge, I guess you could say, regarding the things that we do. Yeah, I mean, it's a constant revolving assessment of everything. So like you said, Ty, I mean, you got to be, you know, up to date on the literature and what best practice would be indicated by the literature. However, you know, you're seeing things in real time on a daily basis and a study can only tell you so much about one population tested in this way. You know what I mean? It's only as good right. as the, the study set up, right? So you appraise that when you're looking at the evidence, but also consider the individual in front of you might have 300 studies worth of factors to consider. Oh, and so yeah. there's not one study that looks at all those factors. So you have to, you know, I think look at the evidence, but also the evidence that's in front of your face or the anecdotal evidence, right? Um, and take into your, you know, the three, it's a triangle and take into your, your experience too, because you know, whether or not, you know, the best option or best, best thing to kind of go through that is like the rock tape, rock plate stuff. 
you know, you have people online that are just like, absolutely not tooling does not work. Taping does not work. But then, you know, when you see it work in front of your face, you're like, yes, but this person, it does work. So where the evidence isn't there, you know, sometimes we do have to use our clinical judgment to say like, no, this is working. So let's keep going. Um, and I feel like that's like what you were saying, you're not trying to downplay the DPT at all. And absolutely not, because, you know, you need to have those assessment skills and you need to know what to look for and you need to know how to change it. And might I add, not only in the first eval session where you, you know, are looking at a broad spectrum of things, right. And identifying major areas, uh, that may need some attention or, or, you know, systems that may need attention, but also as you continue to work with that person, right. I mean, you might identify that there's limited ranges and strength components, and there might be a neurosensory kind of integration component to something. And you start attacking those and that works great. And then like a month down the road, they're like 75%, 80% better, but still are kind of lacking. And then you start picking up some other stuff. And so, you know, it's a a continual assessment process. Um, But I do think that physical therapists and strength and conditioning specialists or professionals I do think that should be more of a gray zone uh, than a clear delineation. There is a delineation in the, okay, so let me back up. There is a delineation in the education and assessment component. Yeah. But I think as far as helping folks goes, uh, certainly people can be helped by either side of the house. It just depends on, you know, where they're at and how much attention they might need. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a role for, you know, both. Now, Tyler, one thing I wanted to ask you about was what um, kind of interface do you use with your clients? So how do they kind of receive their programming and instruction from you and feedback? So um, since the beginning, I guess I have been using TrueCoach. Um, and TrueCoach is primarily based on a mobile app. You can access it via, you know, internet browser on, on a laptop. But my athletes all have access to their program um, through TrueCoach. Uh, it brings up their workout on a daily basis. Um, they can record all of their reps, their sets, their weights, and they can record themselves actually with their camera and leave the recordings. And that's kind of one of the most important aspects of what I do remotely. And one of the most important reasons I chose True Coach was because it gave me and the athletes ability to record ourselves. Because, um, you know, ultimately that's the biggest part of, of the coaching is coaching their movements, right? right? Um, You know, making sure that they're moving forward and progressing. Um, Everything else I handle through, you know, all the other things, PayPal and whatnot, but the the bread and butter comes down to the true coach, basically. And is that something so that they receive feedback every session or kind of on a weekly basis or like spot checks? They're like, hey, I tried doing power cleans today. What do you think, coach? Like what kind of feedback level are you giving them? So... Yeah, I try to give feedback every single day. Um, I think I mentioned before that most of my athletes are only doing programming for me two to four days a week. Um, with some of the individualized athletes, they're getting you know maybe five days a week. So I'm not, I don't have to look at someone's program every day, but every day I'm on there, there is someone that has finished up a workout for the day and I can end up giving them feedback. Um, Just like it works in class though, right? For those of you who have done group fitness that are listening, um, or even like you could, I guess you could consider like practice or or gym class is similar. Um, There are going to be times when you don't want to hear what the coach has to say. Um, (laughs) So in person, it's easy to kind of, I guess you could say, ignore them. 
or scoff it off. Um, whereas remotely, they just don't upload a video. <laughs> yeah. And then I can't, you know, can't say anything. And, and it becomes like a heckle back and forth. And I think remote training, remote um, strength and conditioning is wonderful. And it's, it's something that's needed and, and wholeheartedly a part of the world now. Um, but I think there are some downfalls. For sure. Um, for those who don't know, Tyler has a really awesome Instagram. He's tylercalacy.dpt on Instagram if you want to check him out. Um, posts a lot of good inspirational quotes for sure. And one of the big things he has a lot of on there is knees over toes training. So I wanted to bring that up, Tyler, since you challenged, I'll say Kyle, not me, because I'm... Okay, I still got to do it with my heels actually on something. <laughs> but um, do you want to kind of talk a little about that? Are you doing programming with Ben? Um, actually I did about a month of programming with Ben. For those of you who don't know, Ben, Ben Patrick, Patrick, he comes from the athletic truth group. Um, and they've kind of modernized the knees over toes training. Um, and a lot of the programming that these individuals do actually stems from Charles Poliquin. For those of you who don't know, P O L I Q I N, uh, Q U I N. He's probably one of the greatest, um, greatest minds, I guess you could say, in the bodybuilding world or all of the fitness world um, because of the exercises he created and how well he combined all aspects of fitness and exercise, um, you know, going all around the world and learning from all of these, all of these um, individuals from all over the place and kind of bringing it into his own style. Um, and that's what the Athletic Truth Group does quite well that, you know, they've brought it to the forefront again, where people were kind of ignoring a lot of that stuff. Um, one of the biggest things I value, um, and I've kind of taken into my own programs is his is Ben's big push for getting those knees over the toes, right? We're starting to see that pendulum swing back over this way, as far as rehab goes, where it's okay to have your knees over your toes. Um, and I've you really enjoyed, <laughs> what did you say? You mean they won't blow up? They won't blow up. Yes. 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 Your 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 patellas will not explode if you squat with your knees over your toes, much less um, do it on one leg. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think Athletic Truth Group and, and Ben Patrick and all those guys, um, obviously drawing on Pulikman's ideas, I think what they've really stumbled upon is like graded exposure. Um, yes. Right? And progressive overload. Like, <laughs> it's like yeah. and somehow they figured that out without a doctor degree <laughs> so again yeah, the line no. blurred a little bit there you, you know, know I, 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 paper. sorry but, go ahead. so yeah i mean that's basically what it is and so um to recap because we had talked about this in a previous episode and it's readily available on the interwebs but uh progressive overload and graded exposure kind of similar concepts uh one progressive overload is talking more about continually loading your muscles to the point where they actually adapt to the load that you're kind of demanding on them. And then they get stronger and bigger and, you know, all of the good things. And then, uh, so that's progressive overload. Graded exposure is kind of like, if you're kind of maybe sensitive and it's a maybe seemingly risky movement, either from a mechanical standpoint, or um, if we're talking about pain science in your brain saying, Hey, that might be a threat. Don't do it if you start to slowly introduce that at the right level of stimulus or the right dosage, and then continue to ramp that dose up again at the right rate that your body's ready to handle, which is specific to whatever we're talking about and whatever individual we're talking about. But if you continue to ramp in and work yourself into something 
then you can kind of handle it. Thinking of a, you know, a cool body of water that you're going into. Uh, everybody knows it's worse to jump in, right? Than it is to kind of ease your way into that pool or that body of water, whatever you're doing. And so that's kind of graded exposure in a nutshell. Uh, yeah. But applied to the, the knees over toes training that Athletic Truth Group put out, they are using um, a handful, which is quite a few movements that they're using to expose you to getting your knees over your toes, which yes, it does put an increased level of stress on the patellofemoral joint, um, increased reliance on the quad and the quad tendon and the whole nine yards there. And so, yes, it is more mechanical stress. And for some people, it might be a more potentially sensitive position, right? Because your brain might be saying, hey, every time I get my knee over my toe, it is a threat, therefore have some pain so that you don't do that. But yeah. um, what they've done is, you know, very intelligently programmed in, okay, so wherever you're starting at, do this and then work up into, you know, something that looks crazy from day one, but in six months you can do it, you know? Um, so talk about how you're kind of, how you're working on that, Tyler. So I think um, on the lines of graded exposure and, um, you know, progressive overload, almost everyone needs to go lighter, slower, and more often, meaning Amen. they're probably doing 80% of their exercises too heavy, 80% of their exercises too fast, and they're not doing the same exercises consistently enough over a month or half of a year basis, Amen. Yeah. allowing for that change in tissue, cell growth, things like that, Okay. Things like the knees over toes training and the athletic truth group, those guys are doing things great because they force people without them knowing to go lighter, to go slower, and to do things more often. And I think that's something that I've really begun to introduce into my own programming, giving people thresholds and standards for every movement is a huge, huge benefit to the athlete who's doing those movements. It goes back to the the topic when we were talking about giving people the tools to do things on their own so that it's more of an internal locus of control. Well, telling someone the standard of movement or what to do if they're able to go to this depth, how many reps if they're able to go to this depth and so on gives them that control. Now in the same, yeah, yeah. it's self-limiting and it prevents people from, from further injuring themselves or not getting the actual benefit intended over the course of multiple weeks. I've had people who do this, this type of movement, right? Friends who go to a gym where the coach introduced this type of training to some of the workouts. And these people have ended up creating knee pain. And it took me a little while to understand why a movement that was so well proven to get rid of knee pain would create knee pain in someone. And then it clicked. Those People who had no discomfort in their knees and started doing, you know, knees over toes split squats created knee pain because they progressed too fast. Yep. Yep. They had the ability to do a knees over toes split squat with both feet on the ground, but they didn't have the tissue integrity to do a knees over toes split squat with both feet on the ground. And I think that's a huge concept and a big reason why most laymen or average athletes get injured. 
because they have maybe one or the other. Most people either have the neuromuscular ability to create a movement, but don't have the tissue integrity integrity to carry it out. On the other hand, some people have the tissue integrity to carry out a movement, but they don't have the neuromuscular control to create that movement on a consistent basis. Yeah. And progressive overload and graded exposure allows those people to meld their neuromuscular adaptations and cellular or biomechanical adaptations to create healthy movement. And, you know, just kind of speaking about the CrossFit world in general, I really liked how Anthony would do the introduction because he would have you go through an introductory session to understand where you're at so that you don't get thrown into a class and you're doing everything too fast, too heavy, et cetera. And I think that sometimes people are like, well, you do CrossFit, you must get hurt or don't do CrossFit. Your knees hurt. Stop doing CrossFit. It's just like, well, exactly. That that it's, illustrates the problem, right? right? It's is exactly the problem. People, and myself included at a point in time, <laughs> viewed CrossFit as this terrible system that just is, is bent on injuring people. Oh, and yeah. It absolutely can be that way, right? It can be that way. For However, sure. if you follow the tenets that are set forth in CrossFit principles, then you won't be injured. And it will kind of allow for that kind of graded exposure, progressive overload. Like there's the saying of, and I forget exactly how it goes, but it's like, if you had scaled your wads for your workouts when you first started a year ago, let's say, you'd be so much further today than you actually are trying to RX everything and trying to do, you know, the workout as programmed without any kind of um, scales for yourself to, to get the appropriate stimulus, right? That's what we're really talking about. Much agreed. Achieving the, go ahead, Kai. No, say what you were going to say. Is it well, the important part of anything, right? Is what is the goal of this exercise or this workout in general or this whole tr- like training um, program block? What is the goal of it? What is the intended stimulus? If yeah. you're achieving that, you're probably gonna have good things happen. And if you're like lifting with your ego or just doing things because it looks good on the gram or whatever the hell you're doing, if you're not achieving that intended stimulus or goal, then you're probably not gonna have the results you're expecting. That goes back to it, just seeing what sticks. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. like Tyler was saying before, just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, back to when we were, you know, in grade school, they, the teachers, if you guys remember, they used to draw a line between guessing and inferring, but then they defined an inference as an educated guess. So <laughs> it's, it's all, it's all on the same spectrum. Right. Right. Um, and I think with a higher level, quote unquote, higher level individual or athlete, it's easier to just throw stuff at the wall and see if it does them well, because if it doesn't, they're not going to get hurt because they have the tissue integrity and neuromuscular control to prevent themselves from getting hurt. Whereas, you know, 78 year old Doris walking in the door. Well, now we have to use a little bit more science and make that guess a little bit more, quote unquote, educated. Right. Yeah, and right. most people are really resilient. You know, you could, most people will walk into a gym, do a workout and not get hurt. It's more or less that extended period of time that they spend doing repetitive motions that aren't necessarily with the best form, et cetera, and maybe not having that tissue integrity. That's when you see those, the pathology kind of come out and just say like, Hey, look, my shoulder hurts now after three years of doing this. Yeah. It's, and sometimes the pathology is lost performance. We talk about that right. a lot, right? It's like leaving, leaving performance on the table. 
So it doesn't always mean like, like the saying, the human body is very resilient. If you look at it, people who can contort themselves into all kinds of positions doing like yoga or gymnastics or contortionism, all the way to power lifters who are pulling like 1500 pounds off the floor. So the human body is capable of a broad spectrum of adaptations and is very resilient. Look at what people do. I mean, <laughs> you just search some, some bad, uh, some bad Instagram or Twitter videos or something like that. People like lighting themselves on fire and doing all kinds of crazy manner of stuff and they're still surviving and living. So like my point being the human body is very resilient and we're not saying that like, if you don't have the smartest, you know, training regimen or if your movement is not completely hundred percent optimal for whatever lift or or exercise you're doing, you're just going to blow up and die and like, just quit now. But what we are saying is, even despite having any kind of injury that might be stopping you, you might be leaving a lot of performance on the table that you're not aware of, you know, your strength or your endurance or your speed or agility or plyometric ability, whatever we're talking about, whatever dimension of performance we're talking about could be grossly accelerated if you had a little bit of a better training regimen. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that, whether you are an athlete, whether you are a personal trainer, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, it doesn't matter. Um, the One of the biggest things that's going to help you perform better or help others perform better is by continuing to learn from others, especially from people you don't necessarily agree with. Um, it took me a while to welcome advice or even welcome like a class or a program from someone who didn't really align with what I thought was effective. But in doing so, I have made myself much more, or at least I think, of an effective physical therapist, you know, personal trainer, everything, because I allowed myself to learn from individuals who, you know, were saying things that didn't align with what I was saying at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, perfect example. Um, yoga tune up. Uh, Jill Miller is her name. Had something uh, about like some kind of self myofascial release of the ball or whatever. And I was like, what is this nonsense? And then uh, I had completely kind of written her off. I didn't really know much about her at all. Uh, obviously, she's a very well respected, renowned person uh, within the movement profession. But I didn't really know. And I just saw that one post or something on Instagram. I'm like, what is this nonsense? And then what ended up happening was I saw another thing and she was working on breathing and um, kind of visceral manipulation with a ball, one of her gorgeous balls or something that they sell. And I was like, that's kind of cool. Let me try that. So I tried it out. It worked pretty good. I'm like, I like this idea. And then I ran with it and it has helped several patients uh, to date since then. So like Tyler's saying, sometimes you need to kind of, uh, postpone your own biases and opinions and learn from somebody who has maybe a, a differing perspective than what you think is the truth. Yeah. I mean, knowledge can either put you on a pedestal or give you more pathways, right? Mm-hmm. The more knowledge you have, the more experience you have, you could, you could self-proclaim yourself on this highest pedestal that doesn't let you connect with other people who are doing the same thing or you can use that knowledge, that life experience, that wisdom to create pathways to other people who are doing the same thing or slightly different things. 
to create even more pathways, right? And, and an even bigger network. And I think a lot of times with people who have postgraduate degrees and things like that, we, we have a tendency to kind of sit on that degree and not let ourselves expand our knowledge, especially when it goes outside of things that we think are true. Whereas people who don't have those kinds of degrees, okay, and maybe simply a certification or a, um, you know, something like that, they're super willing to soak in all of this th these things that other people say, and they end up in the plus because of it, because they use all the things that they're learning from all the people. Yeah, exactly. And like you were saying before, we talked about the pendulum going from one end of the spectrum to the other. You kind of have to land somewhere in the middle, right? So you have to have some level of confidence in what you believe helps people works, right? But you also, you know, can't be completely secular in your view and say, this is the only truth. And then in the other end of the spectrum, you can't also just be, you know, scrolling Instagram or wherever else that you're finding stuff and 100% accepting that this is the truth. Anything I see here is good. <laughs> what do you mean? So, <laughs> Are you sure? So somewhere in the middle is probably, you know, optimal ideal um, between being completely sure of yourself and your ideas are correct and being totally willing to accept anything as truth, you know, somewhere yeah. in the middle is probably ideal, but I mean, Instagram um, yeah, is the truth to me. So I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> Listen, there's a lot of good stuff on the gram. So I'll, I'll say that, <laughs> but you have to have a lens to filter it through, but yeah. <laughs> so Ty, it's been really good talking with you. Uh, if anybody is listening and they want to get a hold of you to get a training program going, how can they reach you? Um, I guess the easiest way, um, is going to be reaching out to my Instagram, um, T-Y-L-E-R-K-A-L-L-A-S-Y.dpt, um, TylerClasey.dpt, or you can check out my website, prospect-pt.com, so P-R-O-S-P-E-C-T-P-T.com. Perfect. You heard it, everybody. If you're looking for a program, some, you know, any type of issue going on, reach out to Tyler via his website or his Instagram. And thank you for tuning in and listening to us. And Tyler, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. It was a great conversation. See you guys later and we'll, uh, we'll see you next week.